From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house, our very own Vice President of Theology, ready to answer your questions. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, our one and only Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. And I'm laughing because our our call screener extraordinaire, Mr. Makubensky, is having a little fun in the uh, in the chat window here. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Colin, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. But I have a question for you. Yes. Well, I know I'm talent, and I so I can break the rule about wearing plaid. How does it, how is it you get away with it? Um, it's good to be king, Colin. Oh, there you go. Well, that, that that's a satisfying answer. <laughs> and I have paper towels to sell after the show. So, <laughs> at any rate, so since last we were together, uh, a couple of announcements have come out of the Vatican. Uh, most notably, that uh, our Holy Father Pope Francis will be making thirty-one new cardinals mm-hmm. at a consistory in September. And then also it was released, the list of those who will be participating in the upcoming uh, Synod. And you want to comment on on me out of that? Well, let's just say that some people have been very surprised or maybe not surprised about some of the names. Um, The new cardinals include uh, the man uh, that the Pope just uh, pointed to the CDF who has been a Per, sort of a personal theologian to the Pope over the years, right. both in Argentina and in Rome. So, now it should be noted, however, that you know a lot of people have made a lot of that. Yeah. But also, the other heads of the dicasteries that were not cardinals were made cardinals also. Right, and I was about to say that there were some normal curial things that were done there. It's typical for the heads of uh, dicasteries to be cardinals. Um, the Pope sometimes doesn't do what is typical, so he dropped the practice years ago of necessarily making the cardinals of very large metropolitan sees into uh, the archbishops of Mer- large metropolitan sees into cardinals as sort of a you know goes with the see kind of thing. But in Rome, that it's I think it probably is important because after all, they meet with all the bishops of the world on ad limina visits and so on. And so, being the best, the most direct representatives of the Pope, it's quite fitting that they be 
uh, members of the College of Cardinals. So he appointed all of those whom uh, he recently, or named all of those who he recently had appointed to, to the pre- prefect positions in dicasteries. He also named them as, as cardinals this time around, as well as our own uh, uh, apostolic or, or papal nuncio to yep. the United States, uh, Archbishop Pierre. Uh, who has been made a cardinal, so we will have a cardinal here, I presume. For how long, I don't know. Maybe he has, the Pope has some office in Rome in mind for him. Uh, it's hard to know those kinds of things. If I'm not mistaken, things. that is a little unusual. That, that is unusual. I don't are think generally not cardinals. They have been made after leaving a major national uh, responsibility, such as the United States, others in the past. But it is it is not typical that while they're fulfilling them, they are named cardinals. So um, that that was that was sort of an inter- interesting appointment. Yeah, eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. And then uh, the list was made public of those that will be involved in the synod in the the actual meeting that will take place uh, in Rome. They'll they'll you know theoretically be representing. You know, numbers of people as they're right, there, right? Yeah, but, uh, uh, but still, you know, um, the church is a big place. Yeah, and you know, there are quite a mixed opinions there within that group. I mean, if you take the whole uh, LGBTQ area, for example. Uh, delegates such as Father Martin, who uh, is quite controversial with his opinions. He says he completely upholds the church's teaching on those issues, but yet pastorally he wants to be affirming and welcoming, the usual language that we hear in public on those kinds of things. So he was appointed, but then there are other, on the other hand, there are uh, from Germany, uh, the retired prefect of the CDF, Cardinal Mueller, was appointed, and also the bishop who is, I think, virtually the only one to res- who was on the uh, German synodal uh, group of bishops to resist the, the German synod in, as it was going on. So when I was looking down the list, I could see these uh, contra-positioning of things, and I go back, made me think of something the Pope first said when he came into office, and that is, that he li- that to make a mess, and I think for him that means perhaps to let's have an open, healthy discussion, and the truth will win out. And I think that we look to the Holy Spirit and Christ's promise to the church that that will be the case. Uh, and I think people get nervous that many things are being discussed, which ought to be dead letters. Be in the dead letter office, you know. Forget about, it, don't bring it up again. This Pope is not inclined to do that. Uh, and that has its positive dimensions, obviously, as well as the negative. Uh, most of all, I think it makes people nervous about outcomes. But I think if you back to think back to the Amazonian synod, it was all you know very controversial. Really, not much has changed as a result of that. Um, you know, and I think also we need to keep in mind that that the Universal Church is not the Archdiocese of Rome, and. You know, we have a Holy Father for the first time from a part of the world that has not been heard from in that capacity in the past. That's true, and on on issues of importance to it, that certainly would be, you know, he'd be representing those. Um, There are, I mean, even for us here in the Americas, there is quite a difference of mentality between, you know, the Latin Americans and the Norte Americanos, and, and 
you know, the, the Euro, nor, Northern European-derived uh, Anglo-Saxon, Irish, Germanic, Italian peoples who come to this country. So it's, uh, you know, it is, uh, in a sense, making a mess in some of these situations, but I think we always have to be confident that in God's providence things work out mostly because he's promised they will. And that's that's what we hang our hat on. I, well, and I don't think we can, and I think we we acknowledge that oftentimes. Yeah. We give assent to that oftentimes. But sometimes our attitudes and actions don't back up the fact that we actually believe that. Right. And it's, and it's like our everyday life. You know, we say we trust in God, we trust in his province, but we squeal a lot about, you know, the problems in our lives showing that maybe when the rubber hits the road, you know, we're maybe not quite yet prepared to back up that belief. And I think th- this is a case, and for that reason, I think this pontificate has been a very interesting one. And, uh, you know, this is not uh, a uh, shocking new development in human history. Uh, <laughs> I seem to remember an entire nation uh, wandering around in the desert lamenting the fact that they couldn't eat whatever they wanted in Egypt while they were making bricks anymore. Uh, no, no, this is human nature. It'll be with us until the end, as I heard a priest tell uh, a group of retreats that included priests and seminarians regarding uh, particular passions which men are c- capable of feeling that uh, don't worry about that because uh, three days after you're dead, you will no longer have this problem. <laughs> exactly right. Our very own Vice President of uh, Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. We've got some open phone lines for you. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Robert in San Antonio, Texas. Scott, driving through the great state of Arizona, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Just give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you are from a part of the Universal Church outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN Radio has brought you the Holy Rosary twice every single day for over 25 years. Tune in every morning at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time for Mother Angelica and her sisters uh, in Hansville. And every evening at 9.30 
Eastern Time with uh, Father Benedict Groeschel and Simonetta, only here on EWTN Radio. Forrester is watching us on YouTube today, and he wants to know, Colin, can you explain the moral argument for God's existence and how this works with natural law? Sure, and it's it's not going to be much different than say the resistant the 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 uh, what's called theodicy that division of philosophy dealing with God. You're using reason to get to the existence of God. Uh, Aristotle did it. Uh, others have done it down through time. The moral argument is similar, and that is when your Aristotle's argument on existence was, you have all of these things which have an existence, and if you say that. Where, what causality, where did that, what caused that? Because we know certainly in physics they have the laws which state that, you know, you have to, if you have a, a consequence, you had a cause of that. And we experience this every day. But when you look at all the causation of the universe, whether it's just our Earth or the whole universe, what is the cause of that? And Aristotle's conclusion, reasoned conclusion, was this, you could say, reaches almost the inf- infinite on the natural order as far as we could understand it. The causation required to put produce everything that exists and to sustain it and do all of that, what caused that? There had to be a first cause. He never called it God. He never called it a supreme being. He never called it anything other than a first cause. That's a natural argument for existence. In the moral level, we have the same thing. Where do the moral perfections come from? We were just talking about the role of concupiscence in human life. You, you say, well, prove to me there's original sin. Well, look around you. Look in your newspapers. Watch your television news, whatever it is. There is clearly moral fault and failure going on in the world. There's lack of justice. There's lack of charity. There's lack of you know, uh, patience, persevere, all of it. You go down the list of the virtues of purity and so on. If we have an idea of moral perfection, that is, of an ultimate goodness, in theology we call that holiness. In justice we call that righteousness, always doing the right. In philosophy you might call it moral perfection. Where does where does the idea of moral perfection and the the... You know, the man behind the curtain, as you will, to draw a Wizard of Oz analogy, where does that come from? The same place that the perfection in the universe comes from, the causality of the universe comes from. There is a first cause of the moral perfections, of all that is good, all that is true. And so the arguments, therefore, whether you're speaking of the universe and and the natural arguments for, for God, or you're speaking of the of the moral perfections that we find and how infrequent they really are. But when they occur in a person whom justice and love are the same and inseparable, there has to be a cause of that, and that's God. Because in God, all the perfections come together in one being. That being is what we call God. And, of course, as Christians and as Jews as well, we have, we have a name for that being. Um, so, Robert is next up. He is in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Robert, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Yo, hi. I was listening to Catholic Answers Live yesterday evening, and Jimmy Aiken said, uh, with regard to the U.S. bishops lifting the obligation to abstain meat, abstain from meat on the mm-hmm. Fridays 
outside of Lent. Right. Uh, they did not make any legal obligations to offer some substitute penance uh, in, in place of that. Right. They didn't make an, a legal obligation. But what they proposed is that people substitute something. So a, 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 a charity maybe additional prayers, maybe additional spiritual reading, that you're going to do something that costs you something in your time, your money, or, or something that's valuable to you, uh, as you would have done if you were to abstain, abstain from meat on the Fridays outside of Lent. What they didn't do, regardless of the Fridays themselves, is impose under penalty of sin the observance of the Friday in any respect. This was done in the past where under penalty of sin. But where the moral law does hit the road in this question is that we have from Christ the obligation do, to do penance. So the church is always t t taught you must do penance in order to be saved because we're all sinners. Christ did what he did, but we have to reform ourselves. We must do penance in order to be saved, in order to correspond to the price of our salvation, in order to reform ourselves and be cooperators with that reform. That's what penance does. And so we must do penance. So if we just blow off the Friday obligation, well, the bishops didn't oblige me under pain of sin, and we do neither abstaining from meat or some substitute in that, there would be grave sin, because this is not coming from the bishops, it's not coming from the pope, it's not coming from the councils, councils, it's not coming from anybody other than Christ. We must do penance in order to be saved. And if we are ignoring our obligation to reform ourselves, well, we're going to go the other way. And the question of our salvation will be decided by our choices. And it begins with the choice to either act virtuously and faithfully or the choice to say, eh, it's not, but I've been told I'm not going to sin if I don't, therefore I'm not going to, and then to never do it, to never you observe any kind of, of penance. So that's sort of the regime, the, the canonical regime or the normative regime we're under. Not under pain of sin, but there is still the moral obligation that if week to week to week, well, that's sinful and you should confess that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Scott is driving through the great state of Arizona, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Scott, you are on with Colin Donovan. Oh, thank you very much and good afternoon. Uh, I had a conversation with an old friend yesterday, and uh, uh, we caught up on the past, and then out of the blue he shoots out... Um, He's a Christian, and I needed to get out of the Catholic Church because it's satanic. <laughs> and uh, and I, and I and I my my response was, you know, let's not let's be a Christian and just not worry about attacking other religions. And but he gave me some videos, and he shot this video out by a, um, the late Father Malachi Martin that was um, uh, that was a Jesuit priest in like 1958, 59, and and he had been laicized, but did die a priest. Um, but he had spoke about some satanic practices that may have been going on at the Vatican. This is one of the videos that I received. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it doesn't. I, I'm not shaking whether things might have happened or not happened, but I am going to respond back to him. And sure. I just wanted to know what we know about 
the, you know, the late father Malachi Martin and some of the, he actually published some books and he named some names and things of mm-hmm. that nature. So just wanted to know what we sure. know about that or don't know. Well, his, the story is pretty much as you had it. He was actually a secretary to Cardinal Bia, who was one of the, uh, participated in the, in the Second Vatican Council and had a, uh, in an important role in dealing with the question of Scripture and so on. And so uh, he fulfilled that role, but uh, for re- whatever reasons uh, in his <laughs> conscience or, or whatever, he, did, he left that, and he was laicized. And he claimed throughout his life that in being laicized, he was given the privilege of being able to, to, to celebrate the Mass. Uh, so you can't really gainsay they, that on the lack of any evidence, but he's one of the parties you would think he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't lie about that. Uh, in any case, yeah, he, he, wrote, he, he, he wrote a good deal. Uh, he wrote, I think, both novels as well as, uh, as sort of semi-documentary things like on the Vatican. Uh, but here's, here's the point. Judaism was founded by God. Uh, yet it got became corrupt, uh, so much so that God came and gave them the opportunity of redemption, uh, and uh, it was refused by many and accepted by by many. That is not the measure of the validity of something. The Catholic Church has many, many more positive signs of its legitimacy, <laughs> legitimacy, or validity. Uh, then, then that individuals in it act like sinful human beings throughout all of human history have done, even if they do it in Vatican offices, and some of those stories are undoubtedly true, not just as Martin, but more recently s- such stories have surfaced. That is not the point. The point is, if it's not the Catholic Church, where is the Church Christ founded? Well, you might argue that, well, then it's, it's any church, you know, doing the Lord's will, reading the Bible, trying to be good. And I'm not going to say such individuals in doing that are, are doing anything other than they firmly believe they're right to do. But if Christ left a means of salvation and a way of, be, of, of following him, then we have an obligation to, to adhere to that. And we do that even though we find human beings in that organization, as we're bound to do. And I think the utopianism almost of, of, of this point of view, which your friend suggested, is basically suggesting that, well, there might be some really bad priests working in the Vatican. The popes have said as much. Um, but on the basis of that, I'm going to reject the Catholic Church. Th- that's no good. I... I I had in my own experience when I was in the Navy and then when I got out of the Navy participating in Bible studies, there were no good Catholic Bible studies in the 70s and early 80s. There have been some developed since then. Uh, you know, so I participated with other sailors and, uh, and, and other people I knew, uh, not with any, any view to being uh, convinced of their religious positions on things. They were mostly non-Catholic. In fact, they, they were all non-Catholics. But I remember one fellow coming into one of the Bible studies and was bemoaning the fact that in their church there was a, an argument broke out and they had a schism. And this was a very little small church. And somebody had said confession of sins upon adjoining the church meant that you had to go up to the altar rail and announce yourself a sinner and say what you had done, why you were a sinner, give concrete examples of your sinfulness. 
And others objected to this. No, it was just a general statement. I am a sinner and you're done. You say the sinner's prayer, you become a, become a Christian. Well, who resolves these things? Where in that community would that be resolved? They did. They broke it up. Now there were two communities from one. So when Henry and Luther and Calvin and Zwigli and the others founded their communities, those aren't the only ones in the world. There are 20 to 30,000 Christian communities who hold themselves to be individual and distinct with no obligation to any other one, holding different doctrines. Where in the world will you find the means of salvation that Christ actually left us in the first century? It's in the Catholic Church. The rest of it is merely our human weaknesses and foibles manifesting themselves as they will and be unsurprised about that. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN Radio family, St. John Paul the Great Radio in Tiffin, Ohio, and the Sword of St. George in Manhattan, Kansas, are both celebrating eight years with EWTN. Congratulations to Patty Cress in Tiffin, Ohio, and Kent Hampton in Manhattan, Kansas, from all of us at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sean is a first-time caller driving through the great state of Maine, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Sean, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. My wife and I are on a 50th anniversary road trip. Oh, boy. And we, we, are, we are not Catholic. Our son mm-hmm. and his wife, uh, my son is a recent Catholic. But as we, uh, as a Protestant, we believe that if we confess our sin, that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. My wife and I are trying to understand why um, Catholics pray to uh, Mary or pray to saints. Um, obviously, it's probably a, a school-age question for most Catholics, but sure, as a Protestant, yeah. we don't understand that. Could you help us with that? Uh, sure. Um, and at one point in the past, your ancestors also did. Just, uh, you know, plant that in your mind for a second, uh, that for 1,500 years, all of the ancestors of Europeans, for the most part, had no trouble with any of these beliefs. And we go back to, say, the catacombs and so on in Europe. Uh, we find prayers to Mary or images of Mary in the praying position uh, for, the, for the deceased, even. So the prayers uh, for the case of the dead and so on. Uh, so that's that's not an answer to your argument, but it, I think it shows that in many ways among Christians, not just in our age today, but in previous ages, that was not really a question. And it's very logical what the church does. Uh, if you think about, we, we, we are very happy to call ourselves, you know, brothers and sisters of Jesus and to say we belong to God's family. But if we are in a family, do we go directly? We, it, do, we, do we pray? And all prayer means to make a request of somebody. We can turn that into an act of worship, which it is. Prayer to God is an act of worship. But you sometimes hear this in older English movies or in you know, Elizabethan kind of things. Yeah, I pray you do this X, X, Y, and Z. simply means to request something. Do we say that Jesus is the source of everything and therefore I don't have to ask my 
mother or father or my sister or brother or my best friend or a relative to to pray do you ask people to pray for you do you ask people to assist you with things no we understand the idea of mediation at the human level but if we are part of the communion of the saints even while here on earth something the church firmly teaches and believes then these are our friends, these are our family members, and we are asking them to intercede in the way the classic example is the marriage feast at Cana. You know, the the family didn't go directly to Jesus. They had already probably heard about, you know, who this great preacher. They went to Mary and they told her, you know, we have no wine, and she went to her son and said, we have no wine. That's taken as a great example of the idea of her intercession while here alive on earth. Would it not be the same in heaven? Does she suddenly lose a relationship with her son having graduated, if you will, from this earthly earthly veil? No. That relationship was there here on earth. It's there in heaven. And so the idea of saints in the Catholic idea is not just the people that the church looks into and says, well, they lived a heroic life, they died martyrs, you know, we're going to honor them, there will be a feast day in which we honor them. That's sort of justice. If somebody has cooperated with God to the point that they have acquired a high degree of personal holiness, and maybe in this life done the kinds of things that even Jesus himself did, as he promised to his apostles, you will do the things that I did, then it's an element of justice to God and to their participatory role in his grace to say, I respect and honor you for what you did. And this makes the family a tighter family. So Our Lady and the saints are not only witnesses of of discipleship, that's an important element, but they are are co-heirs through our baptism with with all other Christians, including non-Catholics. The Church firmly believes that baptism is the foundation of the Christian life, and even though in ignorance somebody may not become a Catholic and take advantage of all the sacraments and the teaching that the Church has availed, they can go to heaven by being faithful to that baptismal grace. And so we are all co-heirs of that salvation if we persevere in it to the end, as St. Paul and, uh, and the New Testament clearly shows we must. So it's in persevering that we need that help and we need that assistance. So the Church's understanding is both the element of this union of love that we all have, not with those who are present in in the world and our brothers and sisters in Christ, but uh, those also who have gone before us and with the Blessed Mother in a particular fashion as the mother of the Word made flesh in the order of nature. And so this is, this is all important to Catholics. And the justice then of recognizing and rendering that thanks by saying thank you and, and help me as we would with the family members here on earth. So it all sort of flows from that same idea of very biblical ideas of family, of being children of God, and all of the things that go with being in the baptism, in, in Christ, in his passion, death, and resurrection, and by being so, capable of receiving eternal life with him in glory. That's what we're striving for, and we must continue to strive throughout our life. So we see it all as one seamless view of life here on earth leading to life in eternity, 
And as Jesus himself said with regard to, you know, Abraham and others when he was challenged for saying that he had seen Abraham and he rejoiced that he, Christ, was here, he said, they are all alive in God. They are as alive in heaven as they were alive on earth, and therefore we can ask their help, we can ask their prayers, and we can honor them here on this on this planet as well. Does that help at all, Sean? It, it does. And, you know, the previous caller's friend said, uh, you know, you really need to, the satanic part of it. And we could not be further from that belief. We believe that Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I could not be more happy for my son, who recently converted to Catholicism. So thank you so much for taking our call. You're very welcome, and a very blessed 50th anniversary. I yeah, Sean, get you, Sean you don't sound like you're 50. <laughs> I was well, thinking the I, same I, thing. I'm <laughs> married, and we now have 12 grandchildren, four children, and two great-grandchildren, and, and the Lord is somebody who restores and redeems, and, and that's the story of our life. Amen, brother. Awesome. God bless you. Thanks for the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Sandy, a first-time caller in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Sandy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, good afternoon. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, yeah, I, I have this question has so many layers to it or, or so okay. many things I'm wondering. But I guess one of the main thing is uh, back in April, a uh, priest that served and uh, was our pastor or, mm-hmm. you know, administrator, in the area, and he had um, routinely came to three churches churches he was in charge of. He was gone one Sunday. And, I mean, just, you know, we, we had a, a substitute priest, but nothing could be said. And, you know, every, everyone was quite surprised because mm-hmm. we knew that wasn't in the plan. Sure. Well, a week or two later, we did receive... Um, a letter from the bishop, and it stated that he was on a, um, had to take a leave of absence because there was some claim against him, mm-hmm. and it would be a, a process where canon law was involved, and this would take a while. Well, we we now and we and that it would be temporary or po- you know possibly. Mm-hmm. So we now have a new priest, or that happened, you know, I guess about a month later. And I'm just wondering if we'll ever hear anything, uh, you know, about, sure. I mean, the, yeah. there are rumors, that, and that's very hurtful. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I think friendships, long-term friendships have pop, been... Sure. You know, it's just broken up over this. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, that that's enough right there, probably for a good part of the rest of the show. Um, that, that, whole, that whole thing has a long history. Let me say, first of all, that people's minds might run to the worst-case scenario. That needn't be the case. There are all kinds of reasons other than, you know, child sexual abuse or something like that. 
Uh, somebody can have a crisis of vocation, suddenly become suddenly ill or, or something like that. Leave of absence could mean a number of things. And so um, if, if it has become, if the canonical language is used, then it certainly sounds like it's in reaction to uh, one of the issues that are raised in canon law. And the church is, I would say, properly careful, but from some points of view, you would say it is overly careful in reaction to its previous attitude, which was to trust the priest, to give them the benefit of the doubt, which you can understand among priestly brothers, and the bishops are priests too, uh, that that this is obviously your first reaction. Uh, this is a good man. I don't understand these claims or or, or whatever the situation is. Uh, and that's gotten the church in trouble because the, then it's been showing to, you know, be a problem and even uh, further crimes are committed. So the church has taken, gone the other way, and there are rock-solid norms now which bishops are not free to bend regarding reporting requirements to Rome and in cases where it involves uh, some civil element to the civil authorities. It may not involve those kinds of cases uh, and a priest and with an adult woman or man uh, would not be such a case. It would be contrary to what their obligations were, but that would not be a criminal situation. But the church follows the civil law in these matters uh, out of horrible experiences in some cases in the past, and it follows the canon law, which basically leaves the final decision with the congregation or the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which has a whole section dedicated to canonical cases involving priests in certain areas, not all all, all areas, but uh, in certain areas involving criminality, sexual abuse, uh, misbehavior, and so on. So all of those entail, just like in secular life and civil life, obligations or rights of privacy and so on. So that's what you're running up against in part. Uh, that dioceses and bishops and others who know some of the details are not free to discuss them. A, the rights of the individual themselves, the rights of any alleged victims, the processes that are underway, which require, uh, you know, at, if not an outright secrecy, but at least the prudence of not, you know, giving out public details, just as in, in, in uh, civil cases and so on. So th that's what you're running into, and that's got to be a great cross, not only for the man who knows he's innocent and may be struggling to accept what has been charged, but also for parishioners and family and friends of that individual. So it's a very diff difficult situation, and there are no quick <coughs> answers except that the church is following the norm she's laid down in response to perhaps some kinds of, you know, Bending, bending over to accept the claims of the priest versus the victim, uh, and that's not gone well for the church, so it's doing the right thing in this case and, and following that. So pray for them and just be patient uh, with regard to both the timeline here and also what the ultimate outcome will be. That's about what you can do, I think. I want to invite you to join us for EWTN News Nightly tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Tonight they'll take a closer look at the at an eight-day Eucharistic pilgrimage in the great state of Indiana. That's EWTN News Nightly tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Time.
right here on EWTN radio and television. Next up is Pat in Louisville, Kentucky, listening to EWTN on Holy Family Radio. Pat, you're on with Colin Donovan. Um, I've been reading the scriptures of uh, St. Matthew, mm-hmm. chapter 10, 16 to 23. And uh, after I read it through and got to the last verse, 23, I, I don't quite understand what it, it meant to say that Jesus said that before you finish all the towns of Israel, uh, you won't even do that until before the Son of Man comes. And I I thought through the centuries, they had gone through the whole world. The apostles were sent out. They all went to different towns. But I didn't know understand that the Lord saying, and then when I say to you, you won't finish the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And, you know, we know that the Lord hasn't come back yet. <laughs> Well, apparently the apostles pondered over that, too, because there were all kinds of expectations of Christ's imminent return. You, you, you find that in, um, uh, certainly in the scriptures, as you've noted. We know that Israel was not converted, and one of the hopes which St. Paul talks about uh, in his writings, uh, in Romans in particular, is that when the Gentiles, the church will go out to the Gentiles— before the, and Christ himself essentially predicted this. He said, go first to Israel, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, saying that this would not be accomplished in his lifetime. But once salvation comes to the Jews, we will be in the end times, properly speaking, in which the second coming is imminent. So we've got a ways to go on that. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains this fairly well, beginning at paragraph uh, 668 in the following paragraphs, as the fathers and doctors of the Church did, and that is the order of the things which must happen before the end of the world. And that is that the Gentiles be converted. We know that hasn't happened. There are great swaths of the world where the Church, you know, even in our own day, Mother Angelica had the idea of, of course, We're going to get the signal in there, but conversion is more than people being able to listen on the radio. It's becoming part of the church and and, and, uh, receiving the sacraments and and being united into Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. That has not happened even on all of any continent, not even in Europe, you could say. So what what we will see is, in the as the Catechism puts it, in the wake of of the conversion of the Gentiles, the full number of the Gentiles, will come the conversion of the Jews. And at that point, look out. We know the Antichrist is coming, and we know that our Lord will slay him with his, with his second coming. God bless you, Pat. We appreciate you listening today to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Still time for your calls and some open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Paula would like to know, after a saint is canonized, if it was found out that the saint committed a grievous crime in their lifetime, does it affect their canonization? No. In fact, there are saints who did who did that. There is a blessed uh, in Italy, the founder of, uh, of the great shine, shrine of Our Lady of Pompeii, who was a Satanist at one point, I believe even a Satanic priest. And he was converted. 
And he even went and asked the Pope if he could become a priest. And the priest, the Pope basically said, knowing the risks involved in such a thing, no. But he became a saint. He founded this shrine, this Marian shrine. He became a saint. The standard for canonization is that the person lived a life of heroic virtue. But sometimes that life does not begin until a particular point. And then there's a life of growth. But when they die, they die having lived in those days heroic virtue. They had reached that perfection which a church looks for uh, in an individual before it canonizes them. So recently we had uh, Sister Lucia Fatima, who was, uh, her heroic virtues were declared, which entitles her to the title of Venerable. So she's Venerable uh, Sister Lucia. Uh, that came after the examination of her whole of her virtues of her life not that you know, she it was probably a case where there wasn't much wrong with her life but in many of the saints there was saint ignatius of loyola was a soldier probably had done some pretty nasty things he had a conversion he founded a religious order and and, and lived a holy life and many of the saints tell such a story as well uh, so that doesn't change because it's examining where the person ended up because that's what God is going to look at too. Their forgiven sins are forgiven and when you stand before Christ, you will either be worthy of entry or not and he's, it, it will be based on whether you die in his grace or not. And the church understands that and is looking for heroic virtue in those moments. And people have been denied because there was questions about their heroic virtue. Uh, the, the famous author of The Imitation of Christ, Thomas Akempis. <coughs> in the old days, they didn't know when somebody necessarily was dead, and they buried people who were not quite dead. And so when they were exhuming him to find out maybe, if, you know, uh, find out of the, his remains, they found scratches on the inside of the, of the coffin. So the question arose right away, did he despair? And, of course, despairing would not be consistent with heroic virtue, and his cause went nowhere. That's a rather extreme example, but I think it illustrates the point. Um, we're all sinners, some worse than others, but it's how we die that the church is going to look at. Uh, Walt writes in, since capital punishment has been made federally legal again, would politicians being in support of capital punishment be found just as morally wrong as those being in support of abortion? No, because in the capital punishment is not the death of an innocent. Uh, the church has definitely put, uh, is asking Catholics to consider her teaching that it's not in keeping with the full dignity of man, but rather using patience to wait for their conversion. And there's a wonderful letter of St. Ambrose, the father of the church, the, the one who's uh, who's teaching converted St. Augustine to, to, from his pagan life to Christian life, uh, that it's in our EWTN uh, library in the section on voting. You can just put in capital punishment, uh, Ambrose, and that should bring it up, in which he explains how the church's attitude was in the 4th century, that it didn't condemn those judges who thought that it was useful to for restraining vice and sin and murder and some mayhem and so on, that they would feel, but the church would rather that they use the, the patience of Christ who told to the woman caught in adultery, who didn't say it wasn't justified to stone her, 
by the Mosaic law, but rather said to her, go and sin no more. So that would be the preference of the church, and the church has not said anything else uh, other than that to those who might feel by some necessity or training. I've talked to lawyers who, you know, they're in that, and they say, I see horrible things. I can't see why the church would say certain individuals should receive the full punishment of their crimes. And some just can't get beyond that. But And the church has not said that they commit a mortal sin uh, in any sense. And I think Ambrose's letter is a good expression even of what Pope, Pope Francis is trying to do, trying to con- convince people. Priests can't be ordained if they have been murderers. Christ never murdered. He told Peter to put up his sword. This is evangelical perfection to be the victim and not the, uh, the, the one who takes up the sword. But we are living in a difficult world, a rough world, and sometimes that seems like the only solution. And the church uh, didn't condemn, doesn't condemn people who think that way, just as Christ didn't condemn Peter, he just told him to put up your sword. So I think we're being asked to put up our sword in these days, um, but I think that's the, the extent of it, at least at the moment. Diane wants to know if we have to believe everything in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's the authoritative teaching, and that's all it is, which means that the human form that it takes, the language used, is not necessarily the most perfect. Uh, It could be open to slightly different interpretations, but an assertions of being of Catholic faith, those assertions we must certainly believe as Catholic teaching. So is that yes or no? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's somewhere between yes and no. <laughs> it's human language, but there's a lot of black in there, too. <laughs> okay, well, there you have it. Very good. Well, on behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, <clears throat> excuse me, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Father Wade Menezes is talking faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday. Wednesday, it's Father Mitch talking church teaching, ancient languages, and the like. Uh, Father Brian Milady, our Dominican father, will be here talking uh, moral theology on Thursday. And our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, rounding out the week on Friday. So we get together next week. Have a great weekend and God bless.